Let's pray. Oh, God, you do call us. And so across this community, in the season of camp meeting and summer vacation, we've come. We've come together in your presence, expecting a word from you. So may we hear the calling, and may our hearts respond with all that we are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I enjoyed just a moment ago <clears throat> while uh, Carl, where he's Carl, Carl was praying. We had a, you know, we can't have a, a, a summer choir. We're going to have one next Sabbath. It's an unusual uh, time to have a, a choir, but we have our sanctuary choir, and they're going to be singing next Sabbath. But we had this beautiful choir going during uh, prayer. I don't know if you heard it. These, just, these babies just singing at the top of their lungs. <laughs> That was so special. I said to myself, God, that's who we are. Look at this is summertime, but we're here, and we bring our children, and we worship you, and they make noise, and we make noise, and you, you, you bless us in your presence. So anyway, on uh, Thursday morning, after I've had my worship time and prayer time, and I've run my 5K, I'm standing in front of my bathroom mirror, sweaty, getting ready to lather up to shave, and I... I want to catch the overnight headlines, and so I flip my radio on to WBBM, and I'm listening, and I'm telling you the very first story I heard. In an instant, my eyes are filled with tears. By now, of course, the whole world knows the story of what happened at prayer meeting, at prayer meeting, Charleston, South Carolina. A lone white male, 21 years old, sandy blonde hair sits for an hour as they study the Scripture and pray together and then stands up, pulls out a gun, and nine of them, including the pastor, they're dead, shot dead. And he tells one woman, I'm going to leave you alive so that you'll tell others what you saw. And we find out afterwards that he was hoping by that, by that dark and tragic act that he might somehow instigate a race war in our nation. What's happening to us? What is happening to America? Is there nothing sacred anymore? I mean, black, brown, yellow, white, who cares? Human life? Can't human beings step into their chosen places of worship and can't they lift their hearts up to Almighty God and be in refuge? We're calling a special prayer service for this coming Wednesday night. Wednesday night, I put it on the screen for you. Wednesday night in this sanctuary at 7 o'clock. If you'd like to come and join in prayers, do. Simply a prayer service. We will pray, of course, for the healing of this grieving congregation, the largest, by the way, black congregation in Charleston, the Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church, grieving the death of their pastor, the death of their parishioners. So we'll pray for their healing. We need to pray for the healing of this nation. We do. And we need to pray for our own healing. God help us all. And then we'll transition out of, out of Wednesday night, specially called prayer service here in the sanctuary, to Sabbath because we've already been announcing that Sabbath is going to be a special day of prayer as we especially focus on our denomination that gathers in San Antonio in just a few days, July 2, to do the world church, to do the business of the church. 
We need to pray next Sabbath. We'll do it right here together, you and I. What will we pray for? We will pray the prayer Jesus prayed just before he was executed. The prayer that John Knox, the the great uh, Scottish reformer, on his deathbed, 1572, he calls his wife over and he says, read to me again, John 17, this chapter where, as he put it, I first cast my anchor. We'll pray that prayer next Sabbath. In fact, let's look at that prayer right now. John chapter 17. Pull your Bible out. Let's go. I'm in the New International Version this morning. Whatever you have, let's open it up. John 17. Don't have anything? Pull the Pew Bible out in front of you. What's the page number in the Pew Bible? Page 728. Got your tablet, phone. Let's go. John 17. I'm in the New International, as I just mentioned. I like the way it renders this prayer. We'll read it together. We're not going to read the whole prayer, just a line or two. But the prayer begins, John chapter 17, verse 1, and after Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and he prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. Craig Keener in his his, uh, two-volume commentary on the fourth gospel observes that, in fact, embedded in these words is the tacit request of Jesus to the Father to hasten the cross. Father, let's go. Let's go. Bring it on. Let's go to Calvary. Because you see, all the way through the gospel, John the writer and Jesus the Messiah, they have been saying again and again, not yet, not yet. Jesus' mother comes to him in Canaan and says, hey, boy, we're ready for a miracle right about now. And he says, mother, not yet. My hour has not come. Not yet, not yet, not yet. But now, he says, the hour has come. In fact, the moment of the pivot happens on this Tuesday. This Tuesday. Now, remember, this is Thursday night, late Thursday night when he's praying this prayer. This Tuesday afternoon in the temple, a band of Greeks, converts, have come, and they picked out the the boy in the circle of disciples that has a Hellenist name. Hey, you're kind of a Greek, aren't you? We want to see Jesus. Can you take us to him? And Philip is so flustered. He doesn't know what to do. He goes and finds his buddy Andrew. He says, Andrew, they want to see Jesus. What should we do? Andrew says, I don't know. Let's go ask Jesus. They go to Jesus, and right here, Jesus pivots from my hours not yet to it's now. Watch. Just turn a few pages back. Come on. We've got to see this in your own Bible. Uh, Chapter 12. Philip and Andrew are standing there saying, what are we going to do? The Greeks want to see you. And Jesus pivots. Do you know why he pivots right here? Because it's over now. Even as wise men from the east came to his birth, so now wise men from the west have come for his death. And at last, the universal seal of his global salvation locked up right now. And so Jesus speaks, verse 23. And Jesus replied, the hour has come. Not yet, not yet, not yet, not yet. Now, he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, amen, amen in the Greek. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, now death is the metaphor. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Drop down to verse 23. No, excuse me, drop down to verse 27. 
Unless a, he has just said, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains a single seed. But if it dies, it brings forth this mighty harvest. Now, verse 27, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. <laughs> it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. Just sounded like thunder to the crowd. Jesus speaks again. This will be verse 32. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. There it is, right at this moment, the cross is locked in to the Gospel of John as the towering pinnacle of the resplendent glory of God. Code word all the way through, glory, glory, glory. Now we know the glory is always the glory of Calvary. It's the glory of the cross. So, boy, you go back to chapter 17, verse 1. There's a lot, there's a lot in Jesus' opening line of this prayer. Chapter 17, verse 1 again. And Jesus, after he said this, he looked toward heaven and he prayed, Father, the hour has come. It's here. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. Let's go, Father. Let's go. This is it. Let's move on to your mission, our mission to save the human race. Bring it on. You know, have you ever noticed, though, really, the, 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 the striking difference between the, the prayer that Jesus prays in Gethsemane only in the synoptic gospels, not in the, fourth, not in the fourth gospel. That prayer and this prayer, such a dramatic contrast. You remember in the, gospel, in, in the gospels, Mark, Abba, Daddy, Father, please take it away, this cup. I can't drink it. Take it away. Nevertheless, not what I want, but what you want. So you have that prayer in the three, and now you have this, this, this quiet Acceptance, Father, your will be done. This is your mission. Let's go to the cross. Obviously, it's the same Jesus who prays them. And by the way, he prays, he prays John 17 before he prays the garden prayers. But Craig Keener, I'll put his words on the screen. Notice what he writes. This John 17 prayer is strikingly different from Jesus' Gethsemane prayer in the Mark and Passion tradition. But John undoubtedly intends this prayer to complement Jesus' revulsion of the cross, not to contradict it. In the synoptics, I don't want it. Please, please. In this one, bring it on. John's intending to complement. In fact, as Keener points out, it continues the Johannine, John's Gethsemane prayer embedded already in chapter 12. We just read this a moment ago. Remember when Jesus said, now my soul is troubled. I don't know what to do. Shall we go forward? That's John putting Gethsemane in advance so that he can concentrate on this longest, the longest prayer of Christ in all four Gospels. Because the cross was indeed God's will when he ends that prayer in Mark, but not what I want, but your will be done. This is the prayer that responds to that, your will be done. Why is it God's will? Because from time and eternity, the cross will become the supreme manifestation of the resplendent glory of God to the universe. And what is this glory of God that explodes at Calvary? Desire of Ages, put this on the screen. I love this line. Look at this. Both the redeemed, speaking about eternity, both the redeemed and the unfallen beings will find in the cross of Christ their science and their song. Now, now keep reading. It will be seen that the glory shining in the face of Jesus is the glory of self-sacrificing love. 
And that point is absolutely vital to understanding the one petition Jesus prays four times in this longest of his prayers. Take a look at this petition. What we just read, self-sacrificing love, that's the key. All right, drop down to verse 11. We'll just fly by these. Here comes number one. Four, four times the same petition in this one prayer. Verse 11, Jesus praying, I will remain in the world no longer, Father, but they are still in the world, speaking of his followers, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. Prayer number one. Here comes prayer number two, verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Guess what? That's all of us because we believe thanks to their, thanks to their message. I pray, for, I pray for these, that verse 21, all of them may be one. There it is, petition number two. All of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Here comes petition number three. One prayer, three peti four petitions. Here's number three, verse 22. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. You know what's on his heart on the eve of his death? This petition. That's what he's begging for. He's praying for you and me. And one more time, number four, verse 23. I in them and you in me, Father, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Now, that's the NIV rendering the Greek, so that they may be perfect, perfected into one. Four times. And then what happens? Ah, then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. That they may be one, Father, that they may be perfectly one as you and I are one. The last prayer of Christ, the longest prayer of Christ, is a prayer for our unity. Four times Jesus petitions the Father that they may be one. And, and, and here's the question. How, how are we supposed to find this unity? We just read it. Look at verse 22. I have given them, Jesus praying, I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I've given them the glory. We are brought into this unity when we embrace the glory of Christ. And what's the glory of Christ? We just read it, Desire of Ages. The glory that shines in His face, it is the glory of self-sacrificing love. Keener again on the screen. I love this. Believers who walk in this revelation of God's character, this revelation of a self-sacrificing love, believers who walk in this revelation of God's character cannot divide from one another. You can't, you can't break us apart. Why? Because Jesus just said it in verse 23, I am in them. And if he's in you and he's in me, then how could we possibly divide from each other? We can't. As long as he is in you and as long as he is in me, then it would follow that in living out our lives, we would be living out his self-sacrificing love. Isn't that right? Yeah, we would. We would embrace the glory. We would love the same way. No wonder. No wonder the other John 3, 16 reads the identical way. Did you know that there are two, three, there, there are two John 3, 16s in the Bible? Did you know that? Did you? Yeah, there's this one, John the, the one we're familiar with, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. There's another John 3.16. I want you to see it. Come on, go to the end. It's 1 John, 1 John chapter 3.16. 
I've been waiting all my life to finally get a day when I can point this out. Isn't that something? It's been worth the wait. I never knew it would be today. John 3.16. First John 3.16. The other John 3.16. Oh, this is dynamite. Look at this. The 3.16s, by the way, are very similar. You know, and there were no verses back then. There were no chapters. But the Holy Spirit said, listen, when we put the verses and numbers in, I'm going to make sure that the two line up perfectly. And he did. Here's the second John 3.16. First John 3.16. This is how we know what love is. Hey, how do I know that self-sacrificing love is taking place? What will it look like? This is how. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and, keep reading, we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Isn't that great? Now let's read it from the New King James Version. Slightly different. You'll see. I'll put it on the screen for you. This is the New King James. By this we know love because Jesus laid down his life for us and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Did you catch that phrase, the brethren? Isn't it amazing that our community of faith, in our faith community, when old timers use the phrase the brethren, they are usually talking about the leaders of the church, are they not? The brethren. Well, I never want to be called the brethren. But that's it. Wow. In fact, let's read the text now. Let's insert the leaders of the church so that we take the brethren out. Put it on the screen, please. By this we know love, because Jesus laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the leaders of the church. You say, oh, come on, Dwight. I can understand, but you can't mean all the leaders of the church, because I don't agree with all of them. Some of them are taking a position I simply do not accept. I'm not going to lay down my life for them, for him. Hey, wait a minute. I don't see any exception clause embedded in this 2 John 3.16. Anybody see an exception clause? Well, you only have to lay down your life for the leaders that agree with you. It's not there. Of course not. They say, well, Dwight, come on. It's not the brethren. It's talking about brothers and sisters. Okay, you're right. We'll deal with it as brothers and sisters. Guess what? That means that any brother or sister who believes the exact opposite of what you believe when it comes to the ordination of women is included in this text, doesn't it? Is there a little exception clause embedded in there? Well, as long as you have the same convictions? No. In fact, let's change the text. Let's revise the verse. We never change the text. We revise it. All right, let's put it on the screen, please. By this we know love, because Jesus laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters who do not understand the ordination of women as we do and who obviously do not possess the clarity of thinking and the deep commitment to Holy Scripture and the knowledge of the mind of God as we do. That's what you call a very loose paraphrase. <laughs> Extremely loose. <laughs> but I'm praying that you get the point. I'm praying and have been praying for my church that I love, irrespective of a person's opinions or public statements or positions on this or any other matter, by the way, the text still commands us to lay down our lives in self-sacrificing love for him, for her, or even for all of them, whoever all of them might be. So I repeat, in order for Jesus' prayer for unity, 
in the church to be answered in the lives of his followers, it is imperative we are all brought to the place where we are willing to lay down our lives for one, <clears throat> excuse me, for one another. How? Is that right? Come on, come on. How? Am I supposed to physically die for them? <laughs> no, it's not, probably not talking about that. But it means, listen, please, it means we must allow the church to decide to embrace the very opposite position we have been advocating and be gracious about being outvoted. That's what it means. And by the way, this cuts either way. I have not stated a position. It goes either way. It means sacrificing our option to judge the church and to disparage the majority for not having the foresight and wisdom in understanding Scripture as we do. That's what it means. It means sacrificing our right to exercise our mouths, our pens, our Facebook pages, our emails, our public advocacy to bring all, to bring all our previously vocal and sometimes vociferous communiques to a stop. Halt. Stop. That's what it means. If we continue, listen, please. If we continue to stir up opposition beyond San Antonio and fan the flames of division and disunity in the church, we will play straight into the hands of a dark enemy of the church, the enemy of all of us. Either way, either way, if we advocate division, and severance and the fracturing of the body of Christ, there is only one source for that spirit, and it will not be the Lord Jesus Christ. And you, I'm not even naming his name. You know who will be behind that. John 17, back to our prayer. Verse 22, John 17, 22, I have given them the glory that you gave me, O Father, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, verse 23, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then, Jesus praying, the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. And why will the world sit up and take note of such radical unity manifested in self-sacrificing love? You know why? I'll tell you why. Because this planet today is characterized, the pervasive culture of this world is characterized by disunity. That's the way the world lives, disunity between blacks and whites. Disunity between the rich and the poor. Disunity between Democrats and Republicans, between conservatives and liberals. Disunity between residents and aliens. Disunity between men and women. Disunity between sexual orientations. Disunity between denominations and religions. Disunity between believers and non-believers. Disunity characterizes the broader culture of this world, and our world is fractured to the core. All they know is disunity. So if Jesus' prayer were to be answered... There would be a shining countercultural demonstration of unity in spite of difference, unity through self sacrificing love. And the world then, Jesus says, sits up, and by this they will know I am who I am. 
and you are who you are. You are my people. And by the way, my people means our parish. Right here. Doesn't start in San Antonio, starts right here at the foot of the cross. Washing, washing each other's feet with a self-sacrificing love that commits yourself to the welfare of the other who may never love you back. Just remember, Jesus washed 12 pairs of feet and they all deserted him that night. Self-sacrificing love may never be reciprocated. Who cares? It is the critical DNA of genuine unity. And Jesus has prayed for it, for us third millennials. And we must have it. We must have it. One more time. The other John 3.16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Jonathan Sachs, the former chief rabbi of Great Britain, once wrote, I want you to just look at this sentence, brood over it for an extra moment. Put it on the screen for you. The supreme religious challenge is to see God's image in one who is not in our image. That's the big challenge. That's the challenge for unity, by the way. Leave it up, please. That's the challenge for unity in the church today. The supreme religious challenge is to see God's image in one who is not in our image. You're not like me. So maybe, instead of praying for my church in San Antonio... Maybe I need to be praying for my heart in Berrien Springs. Right here at the foot of the cross today. Let's pray. Oh God, we hear the pleading petition four times. We hear it on the lips of our soon-to-be-crucified Savior. Please, dear God, help us to answer the prayer of Jesus for us right here at the foot of the cross today. In his name we pray. Amen.